Welcome to the weekly deep dive podcast on the Add-On Education Network. The podcast where we explore the weekly Come Follow Me discussion and try to add a little insight and unique perspective. I am your host, Jason Lloyd, uh, here, if you haven't guessed, in my basement studio. Uh, recording this episode, my friend and the show's producer, Nate Pfeiffer, is out, um, let's see, California with his family Thanksgiving, so we'll catch him next week. In fact, for your listening pleasure, next week's episode, I am going to be in Florida, and Nate, the great Pfeiffer, is going to be handling that one solo, so I, I look forward to seeing what he is going to produce next week. Uh, next week's episode, he's going to be covering... Let's see, the Articles of Faith and the Official uh, Declarations of the Church. But this week's episode, you've got me. We're going to be talking about Doctrine and Covenants 137 and 138, the last two sections of Doctrine and Covenants. And before I dive into these two sections and, and finish up Doctrine and Covenants, at least this, this Book of Commandments, if you will, as I was driving home last week uh, after our, our last week's episode talking about Joseph Smith and the similarities, the parallels between him and Christ, and if you need a kind of a, a, just a brief reminder, we were talking about how history, the way God put the role of Christ as Savior and what he did and how he came with the role of Joseph Smith as restorer of the gospel, and at the end of time, bringing the church back to the earth, the gospel back to the earth, and, and their lives are, are poetic parallels to each other. That It's just fascinating to see the similarities. So as I was driving home last week from, from last week's episode, thinking about that, there, there was even more connections that I had forgotten to mention and also throughout the week, a couple more connections that I, I hadn't even noticed, I hadn't even considered that, that started to run across my mind. If any of you, as you were reflecting on the similarities between Joseph Smith and, and Jesus Christ, maybe you thought of some that I haven't thought of or I've missed. If there are some connections that you've had your kind of an aha moment with and, and realized that there are some similarities that I haven't mentioned, I would love to hear from you. Um, our email again is hi at weeklydeepdive.com. Send, send those connections in so that we can share those out with everybody and, and see and consider and, and appreciate that, that poetic parallelism between the lives of these two, of these two people. And, and I do want to be careful comparing Joseph Smith with Jesus Christ, uh, even though both of them act as a, a prophet restoring the gospel. I want to make it clear Jesus Christ did something that no one else did or could and, and is beyond compare in the fact that he is the Savior of all mankind and that he alone could redeem us from the dead. I'm, I'm not trying to put them on equal footing that way, if that, if that makes sense. All right, so getting to some of these connections. Um, one that, that I wanted to mention to you guys last week that I forgot, right before both die, Joseph Smith and, and Jesus Christ, they had hard teachings that really uh, they introduced to the people that shook their followers to the core, and, and a lot of them stopped following them after that. And Jesus Christ, he had a large number of people that were following him. 
And as they were gathered around him, listening to him speak, he told them, if you want eternal life, you are going to have to eat me. That's right. Eat me. You will have to eat my body and drink my blood. Which is kind of a rough thing to say for a lot of people who are following this, this Messiah, this man who's teaching this, this, this peace and love and, and God's teachings. And now he's standing before you saying, you know what, if you want eternal life, eat me, eat my body. And that, that's a weird thing to say. And, and it, for us today, in hindsight, it, it, it might not seem so strange because we have the sacrament, and the sacrament's been around for a long time. And we do partake of the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, and we see that, and that makes sense. That's not a hard teaching. But it is apparent to them that this was a super hard teaching because the Scripture notes that and many from that day stopped following him. And Christ didn't try to go after them and say, whoa, 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 let me explain what I'm trying to say here. Let me try to help you catch the vision and let me tell you all about the sacrament. No, at least the record we have in the scripture says, Christ said, if you want eternal life, you're going to have to eat my body. And the burden of understanding what that meant was not on Christ's shoulders to say, let me tell you. He put it on them. If you really do want to follow me and you're interested in knowing what I'm talking about, then I'll leave it up to you to figure out what that means. I'll leave it up to you to have faith that I am not someone who's just crazy asking you to do crazy things, but to have enough faith in me. If you really know me, you'll give me the benefit of the doubt and you will seek out truth and you will ask me what this means. And in fact, this is, this is going to play an important role when we get into Doctrine and Covenants 138 here in a little bit with Joseph F. Smith um, at, towards the end of this, this episode tonight. Um, but the burden is on you. Ask, do you really believe me? Because if you don't, this is really going to shake you to the core because that's pretty hard to hear. And, and in fact, even today, you have some people that take those scriptures and interpret this as some weird vampire teaching and, and take this a whole different route, right? So this was something that Christ taught, and the scriptures record that many stopped following him after that day. Now, compare that to Joseph Smith, who right before he dies has the King Follett Discourse, where he's talking about God and the nature of God being that of a man who has been exalted and that God is what we are going to become and that there are, all of us will become gods in a sense. So there are multiple gods and this idea of multiple gods and generations of gods was something that was very hard for people to to grasp, to understand. And you look at the Nauvoo Expositor, and they accused Joseph Smith, as we talked about last week, of blasphemy in teaching that there were more than one gods and that potentially God could be fallible. They're putting some words in the prophet's mouth and reading more into what he said, but that is a hard teaching to take right before his death. And the other one with the plural marriage, as you as you look at Doctrine and Covenants 132, and, and that there's a lot of hard things in there that what, what is this doing? 
And with these teachings about plural wives and potentially plural gods caused many to stop following the prophet after that day. And where is the burden? Does God need to come by and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let me let me let me try to explain this better for you. Or or is it I I know who I am and you should know who I am. And if you know who I am, then you will trust me and you will know that there is more to it and you will seek and you will ask and you will you will find comfort in what I am saying even though it seems hard when you first read it. But that was something that Looking at both of them having these hard teachings that caused a schism or a lot of people to stop following them shortly before their death, that was one more connection that I saw. Uh, Both of them, after they died, visited their apostles. We have accounts of Christ appearing to his apostles after he had died. And we have accounts of the apostles, different apostles, seeing Joseph Smith at different times after his death. Both were pierced by metal when they were killed. The, the, the spear, the nails being driven through the Savior's hands, through, through enemies, and Joseph Smith, the enemies who were shooting him with, with metal balls, was pierced. They were both pierced by their enemies. Both rode on animals to their final destination, Christ, as he made it a very important deal to procure the ass that he rode on to enter Jerusalem triumphantly, and Joseph Smith riding on his horse into Carthage to turn himself in, as he said, as a lamb to the slaughter. And that's the other thing. Both went as lambs to the slaughter. Both had the ability, if they wanted, to avoid death, yet both of them willingly went to their death because they knew that's what they needed to do. So there's a lot of cool similarities. And, and as we're talking about these similarities, sorry, I, I, won't, I, I won't dwell on this too much this week because I know we talked about this quite a bit last week. There are just a, a, few, a few cool things I wanted to mention. But as I look at a lot of these connections, uh, most of these are not connections that Joseph Smith could have controlled or made to happen just so that he could say, look, I'm, I'm similar to the Savior. He had no control of his father's name being Joseph, like Christ's father's name being Joseph, right? There's, there's just things that happened that were outside of his control. And as we talk about these things that are happening in history, this is one of the amazing things about history being poetic, about the scriptures and the poetics in the scriptures, is this idea that seemingly this chaos, as different people are writing different things throughout the scriptures, or different people are doing different things throughout history, thinking it has nothing to do with God. And in fact, going to the death of Joseph Smith, very chaotic with a mob of, of over 100, 150, up, upwards to 200 men storming here and shooting, bullets flying all over the place. Uh, chaos. But somehow order is being created out of this chaos to testify and solidify almost almost to sign like God himself is signing these works, saying, yes, this too has my hand in it. This too testifies of me. This too is part of my design. As much as Satan tries to destroy or people try to destroy the works of God, 
this chaos, out of this chaos will I create, which was God's first great work was to take out of chaos and organize and create order in, in, the, in creating the world, having the waters reside and the dry land appear and pulling together the light and separating it from the darkness, bringing chaos into order or establishing order from chaos. And, and so looking at all of these things throughout Joseph Smith's life and realizing that these were outside of his control, yet they seemed to reflect and, and parallel what was happening even with Christ's life. And seeing these similarities is fascinating to me. But there's one that really stood out and kind of nailed the, the nail home. Is that, is that how I say it? Maybe I'm saying that completely off. Uh, drilled the final point in, if you will. When we talked about the baptismal font, and, and, and maybe this is a stretch, maybe I'm just going a little crazy here. You guys can you, you guys can tell me what you think about this. That when we talked about the baptismal font, the twelve oxen, twelve being symbolic of the twelve tribes of Israel, the family that we are bringing everyone into this this family to be saved, to inherit. Uh, the, the the blessings come from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, and then the twelve sons. So Israel is these 12. We're bringing people into Israel to inherit the blessings of Abraham, to be part of this family. The 12 oxen are not just 12 oxen that are divided up into a round circle underneath the baptismal font in the temple. They are three oxen facing north, three oxen facing east, three oxen facing south, three oxen facing west. And I know we talked about this in an earlier podcast episode. I'm, I'm going to kind of sum it up a little bit here and show you where I'm headed with this. So you have the number three, which is associated with heaven and, and the circle and the Godhead, three, a, a divine heaven, spiritual realm. And then you have four, the four corners of the earth. And you have north, east, south, and west. And the four is associated with the square and and earth, the four corners of the earth. And when you take three and four and combine them, it gives you the number seven, which is perfection. And when you take this circle and square, the circle being the heavenly, the three, and the, the square being the four, the earthly, and you combine them, you put the circle on top of the square, it creates that arch that you see the Christ coming out of his tomb, that's part of the logo of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints now, this, this idea that's, that's played a prominent role throughout Christian um, architecture as you look at the, 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 the monasteries, as you look at the cathedrals, as you look even, even at church buildings, you see these tall arches playing throughout as this, this symbolic sacred symbol. But the three and the four, the square and the circle, the, you see them in temples. But the four being a, a number representing the four corners of the earth or the earthly realm, the mortal. The three being the heavenly or the spiritual the, and, and representing that circle. And neither are we without our dead, neither are dead without us, but we are perfected in each other. You combine that. Even, and, and the same thing, the spirit without the body it's not a fullness of joy, but it feels like it's a heaven until the spirit and the body are reunited. You combine those two, and we're doing work to save the dead. This idea that combining a mortal person standing in proxy for a spiritual person, this physical and the spiritual combining together, this three and this four, creating a perfection, which is uniting all of all of the 12 tribes together. So you have, you have three, four, 
7 and 12, these numbers prominently displayed in the, in the temple with this baptismal work of the, the, the mortals doing work for the spirituals, uh, the, the spirit beings, and, and bringing them together and perfecting them and, and pulling everyone into the 12 tribes. I'm sorry, I went through that kind of fast. I, I hope it makes sense. I hope you've, you, you've heard that in one of the previous episodes, and so this is more kind of a, a quick summary reminder of what we talked about. Where I'm headed with this is you look again at the martyrdom of Joseph and Hiram in Carthage jail. You have three brethren, Joseph, Hiram, and John Taylor, who are shot with four balls each. So that gives you, <coughs> excuse me, the combination of three and four, which gives you your seven. Three people are shot out of four people. Willard Richards isn't shot at all. Uh, Joseph Smith's prophecy saying that bullets would fly all around him, but he would not be pierced. He would not be shot. So three out of the four were shot. Out of the three that were shot, they were shot with four balls. So again, you keep having this play, this three and this four. And, and that combining three and four gives you seven. But also, if you count the total number of, of wounds that, that were inflicted, three times four, so the three brethren that were shot four times, gives you a total of 12 wounds. Again, your 12 tribes of Israel and, and this earthly and spiritual and, and these numbers just kind of bringing it back in that out of all of this chaos that happened and these men who painted their faces black were fulfilling scripture as we talked about in, in Alma. They, they were, without knowing it, they were, they were doing things that brought about God's work, that they were testifying that this chaos, there was still order to be found in there and that this was part of God's design. I, I hope that makes a little bit of sense, and maybe maybe it does, maybe it, do, it doesn't. If, if you think I'm crazy, go ahead, shoot, a, shoot, shoot me an email, hi at weeklydeepdive.com, and help, uh, help, help, help me understand that a little better or, or not be so crazy. Uh, if it makes sense, also reach out, hi, weeklydeepdive.com, and, and, and let me know if that, if that is, resonates at all or, or, or sounds, sounds like it makes any kind of sense. Okay. Thank you. That's, um, that's, uh, I think that's about all I wanted to talk about. I guess the other thing was last, uh, last week I was, we, we, we were recording pretty late that night. I was, I was uh, having a hard time remembering names and, 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 and uh, temples. So I apologize. My wife gave me a hard time. The Nauvoo temple is the temple that burned down. Um, and and to Nate's point, Nate was right when he talked about the the, the temple being destroyed and, and that similarity there too. It was the Nauvoo Temple that that was destroyed. So and uh, Dan Jones was was the one that was there and and whatever other names I forgot. Um, sorry, brother and sister Armstrong out there serving your mission. Anyhow, going into this week's episode, this week we're talking about Doctrine and Covenants one thirty seven through one thirty eight. And in 137, this is a revelation that Joseph Smith received in 1836, taking us back a few years before he died. And in this revelation, he sees heaven, which is pretty cool. We don't, to have heaven described to us from a prophet who was able to see into it. And, and he doesn't describe a ton of details, but the details he does give us, I, I find are interesting enough that, that we should mention them. 
First, let's see, verse 1, The heavens were opened upon us, and I beheld the celestial kingdom of God. And the glory thereof, whether in the body or out, I cannot tell. I saw the transcendent beauty of the gate through which the heirs of that kingdom will enter. Okay, this is where I want to start. The gate. The gate to heaven. We've heard a lot about the gates of heaven, right? I, I think we've seen it in, in TV episodes all the time. Um, isn't it Peter stands at the gate and, and do you make it in or not? And, you know, a lot of times you got the clouds and you've got some guy sitting out front with his book and a pen or, or whatever the case may be who's, who's checking his list and saying, yeah, you can enter like, like some sort of VIP going into a club or you're headed somewhere else and the clouds drop out from underneath you and down you go into fire or whatnot. So the, this idea that there are gates in heaven, to have Joseph Smith mention a gate to the celestial kingdom, I do find interesting. But listen to his description of gate. The gate through which the heirs of the kingdom will enter, which was like unto circling flames of fire. Yeah. This is not just some metal gate that swings open or closed. And, and that might seem like maybe the wrong images. We're talking about a gate. Is, is the celestial kingdom really this exclusive club that nobody should be able to go into except for a few select people on the VIP list? And, and I like that the gate here, as Joseph Smith is describing it, is saying it's not this, it's not this metal gate that is permanently closed and only opens every now and again. Instead, it's like circles of fire. And when I imagine circles of fire, there's nothing about these circles of fire that are necessarily keeping anyone out except for the, the, the desire to not walk through fire. It's almost like saying anybody can come through these gates, but in order to do so, you must be purified. You must be willing to go through fire to get here. That's the imagery that I see. These are not gates that occasionally open every now and again that you need a little WD-40 or whatever to, to, to lubricate the, the gates and make sure they're still opening and, and, and to beg somebody with a pen and the, and the checklist to let you in. Everyone is invited in, but you have to be willing to pass through the fire to get there. And to me, that's what this life is, is like. When we go through our trials, when we go through people doubting us or turning against us, or when we go through hard times trying to make the right choice and feeling like we stand alone, those moments where we're going through the refiner's fire is preparing us because it is going to take going through fire to get into heaven. And when we get there, we would have already gone through it and we understand it and it's not going to scare us because we're used to it and we will walk through that because we will be pure then anything that's not won't be allowed in because it'll be burned off like the chaff or the or the the dross the the, the impure stuff that, that gets left behind all that's left is what's pure so I, I love that description of the gates much more than than any of the other comical things that we see in, in, in movies or, or, or descriptions or books. This, to me, I don't know, it sounds, sounds better than, than anything else I'd, I've heard. 
All right, next, after we get through these gates, and the gate through which the heirs of that kingdom will enter, which was likened to circling flames of fire, and also the blazing throne of God, whereon was seated the Father and the Son, which I think is cool. His throne is blazing, so even he is sitting, if you will, in fire, engulfed in flames, but the flames don't hurt him. And you look at the bush, uh, Moses, when he was headed, and he sees the bush that is engulfed in flames, but the bush isn't consumed. And this idea that if we have impurities, that gets consumed. And hopefully a lot of those are consumed in this life. And through the atonement of Jesus Christ, when we rise again and go to enter into the celestial kingdom, we don't have those impurities anymore. We can walk through unscathed to where you can sit on this throne that's blazing and it won't touch us or phase us. So the blazing throne of God, and it's not just the a one throne whereon was seated the Father and the Son. So you, you could look at this and interpret this two ways. The Father and the Son because they are the same person. Christ being the Son and that He was born here on earth and submitted His will to the Father. And being the Father and that He is the one that saved us all. Through Him we are born again. He gave His life to the church so that the church could give us birth through baptism. If you look at the church as the mother and Christ as the Father who gave of himself to the church so that we could be saved. He becomes the father of us all. So you could look at this as the same person. I tend to think of this as the father, as a separate person, and Christ sitting on that throne with him, a two-person throne. And Christ says we will sit on the throne with him, even as he sat on the throne with his father, saying that he receives all that the father has, and we will receive all that he has, this this co-heir imagery with the throne, that it's not made for just one person. In the beginning, this throne was meant to be shared with those that were loyal, that were faithful, that they will receive all that the Father has. And and Christ received all that the Father has, and we will receive all that Christ has, being joint heirs with him. So I love that imagery of joint heirs sharing this common throne, which is a two-seater. That's, that's, how, I, that's how I like to read it. Excuse me. Next, I saw the beautiful streets of that kingdom, which had the appearance of being paved with gold. Now, it doesn't say that it was actual gold. Joseph Smith isn't saying that in this vision he stopped and took samples of the paving and the, the, the asphalt, the road work, and, and, and brought it back and did spectrometry and confirmed that it was gold. He says it had the appearance of being gold. And, and again, I think there's a lot of symbolism to that. Whether or not it was real gold, gold has always been something that is very valuable here on earth. And, and it's been used as currency or something of value since the beginning of time. And there's a reason for that. Gold is unique on the periodic table of elements. Uh, it's, not, it's not something that's super explosive. It's not a gas that's going to evaporate or be hard to track. It's not a liquid. It, it's going to be a solid. It's not super rare to where you, you, you can't get enough of it to do anything with it. It doesn't have a super high melting point to where you can't melt it and, and fashion anything with it. 
it, it, it meets all sorts of desirable properties. It looks very attractive. It's unique in that luster, that shine, that coloring. It stands alone in that sense. Um, but it also stands alone in, in its ability to not react with other things. It, it's, a, it's a metal, but it doesn't, it doesn't react. And because it doesn't react, it lasts. And it lasts a long time. When you find things that are shaped out of gold from the ancient world and you see them now, I mean, it's soft and malleable, but it holds and, and it won't rust, corrode, or disappear. Even silver will, will tarnish over time. Copper is going to rust and oxidize. It's going to turn green and, and, and corrode and disappear. Iron is going to rust and disappear. But because gold does not react with other elements. It's highly stable and, and doesn't interact with other elements. It has a, a sense of permanence, of stability. And, and I, was, I was reading this description as the streets being gold, and, and I was thinking the significance of why, why is it significant that they would be of gold. A, a couple scriptures kind of come to my mind. Job 23.10 but he knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. So again, kind of talking about passing through those gates of fire and being purified, that we come through as pure like gold without these impurities. We, we, we start off as ore, and throughout our life, we're being smelted and, and tried and tested and, and given hard things that we might not readily accept or believe and trying to find faith in God and believe in the face of, of people that are telling us that we're ridiculous. And, and as, as we hold and wait and, and believe in the Lord and everything else falls off, we come through as gold that has been tried and proved and enter into that kingdom. So I, I think it's cool that way as we read Job. Uh, Zechariah 13.9, similar. And I will bring the third part through the fire, and I will refine them as silver is refined, and I will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name, and I will hear them. I will say, it is my people, and they shall say, the Lord is my God. So we have that, 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 that testing, that proving that's associated with gold. So it's fitting that it should be there in the celestial kingdom, at least in appearance, that symbol. Um, we talked about its ability to not interact with other elements too, though. And, and that reminded me of Ephesians 4.14, where it says, quote, Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. As you look at something that easily reacts to the things around them, as we mentioned, copper and iron, and as they react to those, that it cankers them. It, it, it kind of wears them down. That ability to stand alone and to stand solid, unchanged by the craftiness and the winds and being tossed back and forth by the waves. Look at Peter when he first stood out on the water and the waves are concerning him and the wind. And he's about to sink and Christ reaches out to him and changes his focus again. That as we are anchored and focused on Christ, 
these things don't rust us or corrode us. We establish a sense of permanence when when we are able to, I, I and, and I guess I want to say this in a way, be in the world, but not of the world. Because it's important. What makes gold special is not that it has to be preserved in a separate case and not interact with anything. It's that it can interact with everything and still maintain its integrity. And that is what I think is neat, the symbol of gold, that you can maintain your integrity in the face of all of these trials. In fact, you have to go almost through these trials to prove your integrity and to show that you're not willing to to just corrode and jump off the ship on any little thing, that you're willing to wait and listen and, and trust in the Lord and not let anything dissuade you or pull you away. So I, th- I think there's some value there. And lastly, as I look at this gold, it's being used as pavers, right? It is, it is the streets, what you're walking on. And the idea of the worth of a soul is great, that we are being placed above gold. Above, as great as gold is, man is even greater. There is no value, no money, no anything that is more valuable than the worth of a soul who walks above that. So again, there's just a lot of symbols and power in this imagery as as Joseph Smith is seeing the celestial kingdom. Uh, Verse 5, I saw Father Adam and Abraham and my father and my mother, my brother Alvin, that has long since slept. And and that's something interesting to him, to see Alvin there who has long since slept. And and he sees also his mother and his father there. And, And this is interesting because this is 1836. Both of his parents are still alive at this time. To see his living parents in the celestial kingdom is, is to say some future point in time. Not, not right now a snapshot of who is in the celestial kingdom. But at some point in time, he's seeing his parents in this kingdom with someone who he worried might not be there because he died before the gospel could be restored. And, and this is before the teaching of the redemption of the dead. The, the, the baptisms for the dead isn't going to happen, this revelation, for a few years but it is teaching him that those who died before they would accept the gospel, if they would have, that God judges us not just according to what we do, but our works and our desires and our intents, and that there is a plan laid out to save those who would have accepted the gospel had they planned to. And this was such a comforting vision for Joseph Smith, who worried so much about Alvin. And it teaches us about the children before the age of accountability. And in fact, it says that, verse 10, And I also beheld that all children who die before they arrive at the years of accountability are saved in the celestial kingdom of heaven. And it's comfort to him to know. And, and it's consistent with the teachings. When Christ is, 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 is questioned about a blind man, and, 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 the, and the Pharisees, he calls them blind, And he says, look, if you were truly blind to where you didn't see, it would be better because there would be no fault in you. But because you are not blind, you see, you say you see, you're held accountable. And this idea that you cannot be held accountable 
for for things that uh, for deformities uh for for not knowing for not uh, this idea that if you are not capable if you're a child or you you don't have the ability to understand that's not being held against you that's not what you're being judged on so great comfort in this revelation from Joseph Smith I love the imagery I love the power I think that's all about uh, all I wanted to mention here in Doctrine and Covenants 137 Let's move into the last section. This is 138. This is a revelation received by Joseph F. Smith. And if you don't know who Joseph F. Smith is, and in fact, I, I if you look at the album art for this episode, um, you, you should be able to see it when you, you see the different uh, episodes. They should have a different picture. I try to put a, a kind of a picture, an album art for this ep- for each episode, kind of unique to the episode. And this one, I want to put a picture up that Nate actually introduced me to. Nate showed me a picture of Joseph F. Smith out on a beach in Southern California. And when I think of Joseph F. Smith, I think of Joseph F. Smith, um, not, not, a, not a particularly large man, but he definitely had a large beard. And, and I see him kind of dressed in formal clothes with this large, long, white beard. And, and I don't think much of it, but when Nate showed me this picture... Joseph F. Smith was was built strong. He he had big arms, powerful looking man. It, not at all what I imagined him to be. So I'll I'll show you. I'll, I'll post this on on the the episode artwork. If if you don't know where to see it, if it doesn't show through on the app that you're looking at, you can you can visit it on the website addoneducation.com and click on podcasts, and then you can see the different episodes, and and you'll see this episode. You'll see a picture of Joseph F. Smith in his bathing suit out on the beach in Southern California. And, man, he looks like a big guy. He he looks like a tough guy. And it makes sense because he was the son of Hiram Smith. He was born while Hiram was in Liberty Jail. He was only five years old when his dad and uncle were martyred in Carthage jail, almost six. Uh, His family came to Utah in 1847, 48, right towards the beginning. And, And not long thereafter, his mom died of pneumonia. At 13 years old, he was an orphan. And he had a lot of anger issues. This is why it says it makes sense that he was as big as he was. He was feisty. He had a lot of anger issues, in part definitely dealing with the death of his parents, and particularly his father and his uncle Joseph. Uh, he, he, was, he, he was sent on a mission at the age of 15, and the reason he was sent on a mission is because they didn't know what to do with this boy. He didn't have parents, but he, he, got, into, he got into trouble. He assaulted a teacher who he thought was punishing another student unjustly. He didn't take kindly to, to, to people not being dealt with fairly. So, yeah, he, he describes himself as feisty, saying there was a burning rage and explosive temperature. Temperature? Where do I? Burning rage and explosive temper, which he attributes to the death of his parents, at least in part. So that's that's kind of the the the, the upbringing or where he's coming from, uh, this this rough tough guy. And so you see a picture of him, and you're like, yeah, he he does look like he's a, a a pretty tough guy. 
I, I don't know. It gave me a, a different a different perspective on on the prophet's life. Look, looking at that picture, and now I probably spent too much time talking about this picture. But anyways, he serves his mission in Sandwich Island uh, mission. He spends a lot of time in Hawaii. At the, at the young age of fifteen is when he's called. Uh, he he later serves a mission in in the UK, and then he becomes a church historian. And at the time. He recorded a lot of the polygamous marriages at the endowment house. And then when the federal government's coming in and and plural marriage has been banned by the United States and they're coming to prosecute the saints, he would be a key witness for the federal government, having written down an account of all the people that were married. They thought it prudent to send him back to Hawaii and, and serve a mission out there. And he was also sent out there to correct some issues when an an apostle went apostate and formed his own church, misinterpreting the words of Brigham Young, thinking that he should be a leader out there and creating his own quorum of the 12 apostles. And and they sent him out there. He's familiar with the area as a translator to kind of help clean up the mess and and, and get things organized and, and back back the way they should be. So he's he's had a lot of interesting experiences from a very young age. Um, he had... 43 kids that he was a father to, and he adopted five other kids. So he had a total of 48 children. And apparently, from from all the records and from what I can tell, he was an amazing father and husband. Uh, Not every plural marriage ended very happily for for the kids and the wives uh, trying to vie for their father's attention. there's There's some stories that are less than happy or less than positive, but from everyone's response about Joseph F. Smith's family was that it was a very happy family, a very thriving, prosperous family. He has well over 5,000 descendants today. Of, of course you would if you had 48 kids. That's an incredible start. Um, just a really interesting guy. So that's kind of an introduction to him. This is uh, the only section that he has as a revelation as prophet of the church. And interesting enough... This is a conference address that he gives on October 4th, and his address on October 4th is the vision that he received on October 3rd. Typically, when I think of prophets and their, their conference addresses, I think that these are talks that they're preparing for, for months ahead of time, getting ready for this conference. And he stands up and just shows tells everybody about the revelation he had the night before. So he receives this revelation October 3rd. He gives it as a conference address on October 4th. The Quorum of the Twelve accept this as doctrine, and, and they decide to publish it, not in the Doctrine and Covenants where we have it today, but actually in the Pearl of Great Price. It was part of the Pearl of Great Price before later being pulled from the Pearl of Great Price and appended to Doctrine and Covenants as the last revelation in Doctrine and Covenants. And, and, and interesting enough, this was his last address to the church. He died a month later in November. So, And it's a fascinating revelation. There's a lot we can learn from this. It comes as a direct result of pondering. As he says in verse 1, On the 3rd of October in the year 1918, I sat in my room pondering over the Scriptures. And verse 2, And reflecting upon the great atoning sacrifice that was made by the Son of God for the redemption of the world. 
So he's not just pondering about the scriptures he's reading. And what scriptures is he reading? He's reading from Peter, talking about Christ going to the dead. Um, We can read from that. He tells us exactly what he was reading. Verse 7, quote, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when some when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. For this was the cause that the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. Those were the words that he was pondering. But he wasn't just pondering over the scriptures, as it said in verse 2, but also reflecting upon the great atoning sacrifice that was made by the Son of God. It's a powerful combination. When you're thinking about the scriptures, but not just thinking about the scriptures, but reflecting on them in context of the atonement and wondering about how amazing the atonement is and the love of God for what he did. This opens his eyes, as he says in verse 11, As I pondered over these things which are written, the eyes of my understanding were opened, and the Spirit of the Lord rested upon me. And I saw the hosts of the dead, both small and great. And and I love, here he says, the hosts, plural. And And to me, it's not just one massive host, but you have hosts, groups, both great and small, large groups, small groups, lots of groups, not just one massive group. But he says, and they were gathered, let's see, and they were gathered together in one place, an innumerable company of the spirits of the just who had been faithful in the testimony of Jesus Christ while they lived in mortality. So all of these different groups are gathered in one place. And, and they've gathered together. Why? Because they're waiting for Christ, who had offered a sacrifice in the similitude of the great sacrifice of the Son of God and had suffered a tribulation in the Redeemer's name. So this right here this is talking about the people that constitute the groups, the hosts. These people had all made sacrifices similar to the sacrifice that the Savior had made. They had all been willing to sacrifice themselves, their lives, to live for Christ, to teach, to help, to do what they could to save others. They had all made sacrifices, and they had suffered tribulation in their Redeemer's name. Again, going back to that idea of gold and the fiery gates that you pass through. All these had departed the mortal life firm, going back to that imagery of gold, firm in the hope of a glorious resurrection through the grace of God the Father and His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. I beheld that they were filled with joy and gladness and were rejoicing together because of the, ha- the day of their deliverance was at hand. They were assembled, awaiting the advent of the Son of God into the spirit world to declare their redemption from the bands of death. They knew Christ was coming. They had a firm hope, a belief, and they were waiting for Him to get there. Their sleeping dust was to be restored unto its perfect frame, bone to his bone, and the sinews and the flesh upon them, the spirit and the body to be united, 
never again to be divided, that they might receive a fullness of joy. And, you know, we mentioned that a little bit earlier, the idea that the spirit and the body are both essential for a fullness of joy, that those two combined, that mortal and the spiritual, that four and the three, giving us a perfection. Um, While the vast multitude waited and conversed, rejoicing in the hour of their deliverance from the chains of death, the Son of God appeared, declaring liberty to the captives who had been faithful. Now, this is a powerful vision that he has. He's seeing this happen, and he sees that Christ was there for three days. And that's it. That's the end of his vision. But that's not the end of the section, because when the vision is done, he's not done thinking and pondering and reflecting. And the thought that comes to him is, how is it that Christ took three years of his mortal ministry to organize a church here on earth and preach and do everything he could, not for the entire world, mind you, just this small group in Jerusalem. And yet you've got these people that are waiting from the time of Noah, all generations, the whole world, and he's only going to spend three days there? How is that possible? How does he do it? So he's starting to wonder about this. He's not, he's not just content taking the revelation and saying, oh, that's, that, that's cool. Thanks for showing me. He's, he's still thinking. And it says, so verse 28, And I wondered at the words of Peter, wherein he said that the Son of God preached unto the spirits in prison, who sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. And how, is, how it was possible for him to preach to those spirits and perform the necessary labor among them in so short a time. Verse 29, And as I wondered, my eyes were opened, and my understanding quickened, and I perceived that the Lord went not in person among the wicked and the disobedient who had rejected the truth to teach them. But behold, from among the righteous he organized his forces with appointed messengers clothed with power and authority and commissioned them to go forth and carry the light of the gospel to them that were in darkness, even to all the spirits of men. And thus was the gospel preached to the dead. I'm going to go back to verse 29 and just read that first line again. And as I wondered, my eyes were opened and my understanding quickened. His revelation didn't end it did, but he didn't stop wondering and, and asking. And then he received even more. And, and that, to me, is what it means to have an open heart and an open mind. And it reminds me with, with what Jesus taught when he came to the Nephites. And, and this is found in 3 Nephi 15. And he's talking to the people. Let's see. Let's start. Um, let's start in verse 12. This is Jesus Christ as he's here in the Americas, and he's teaching the people in the Americas about what it means to have other sheep. Ye are my disciples, and ye are a light unto this people who are a remnant of the house of Joseph. And behold, this is the land of your inheritance, and the Father hath given it unto you. 
and not at any time hath the Father given me commandment that I should tell it unto your brethren at Jerusalem. Neither at any time hath the Father given me commandment that I should tell unto them concerning the other tribes of the house of Israel, whom the Father hath led away out of the land. Do you understand what he's saying here? You guys are my disciples. You guys are sheep. You guys are important to me. And the Father told me, never told me to tell the people about at Jerusalem about you here in the Americas. And also there's other groups like you that the Father told me not to tell them about. And, and I don't know who these other groups are that he's, that he's referencing, these other sheep. Let's keep going. Verse 16, This much did the Father command me that I should tell them that other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. And we see that in the New Testament. But look at this, 18, pay attention. And now, because of stiff-neckedness and unbelief, they understood not my words. Therefore, I was commanded to say no more of the Father concerning this thing unto them. But verily I say unto you, that the Father hath commanded me, that I tell it unto you, that you were separated from among them because of their iniquity. Therefore it is because of their iniquity that they know not of you. And verily I say unto you again, that the other tribes hath the Father separated from them, and it is because of their iniquity that they know not of them. And verily I say unto you, that ye are they of whom I said, Other sheep I have which are not of this fold." Them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. And they understood me not. Why didn't they understand? They said over here because of their stiff-neckedness and unbelief. But here we get a little bit more of a peek. Verse 22, And they understood me not, for they supposed it had been the Gentiles. For they understood not that the Gentiles should be converted through their preaching. Do you see what's going on here? I, let's see if I can make this clear, or at least what I'm thinking. Jesus Christ told them at Jerusalem that he had other sheep that weren't of this fold. And, and if you're thinking about that, just like going to Joseph F. Smith, when he sees this glorious vision, the Lord's given him something. And it doesn't all make sense. And he sees this, and instead of just assuming that he understands the rest of it, or that, you know, oh, I'm sure that makes sense, or, you know, maybe it doesn't make sense and I don't care, he stopped and said, whoa, you know, what you told me, instead of being an answer, actually gives me more questions. And he takes these questions and he asks you know, wait, how did this happen? And then his eyes are open and his understanding is quickened and he sees more. But these people, rather than ask, you have other sheep, what do you mean by other sheep? Who are the other sheep? Lord, can you show me these other sheep? Where are they? What are they doing? Because if they would have asked those questions, the Lord says he would have shown them. He would have told them all about it. 
And it's almost as it's super frustrating. You see this all the time in the comedy movies. Right? You know, is a, a line of comedy like, "Well, why didn't you? Act? Or you know, what, what, why didn't you say anything? That seems like a really important detail." And they say, "Oh, because you never asked." And and as frustrating as that is, it's almost like what the Lord's doing here is he's he's baiting us and saying, "Hey, let me just let me just tell you something," and and here it is, and we just assume we know what it means. And if we just assume we know what it means, our heart's not really opening because we're substituting what God is willing to teach us with our own teachings. These people are assuming that the other sheep were the Gentiles. And Christ is like, you know, that's kind of a silly assumption. I was never going to appear to the Gentiles. I never did appear to the Gentiles. They understood not. I was going to have them appear to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles were going to learn through them. That was their responsibility. I was only going to the house of Israel, and there was scattered remnants of the house of Israel all over the world. And if they would have asked, I would have told them all about you. But they never did. They assumed they knew what I was talking about, and so I let them believe. In fact, God commanded me to let them believe that. And so I contrast that with Joseph F. Smith, who didn't just assume or make something up and say, oh, yeah, I know what this is. And, and, and you see that sometimes as a parent when you're trying to talk to your kid and, and you're trying to explain something. They, they, maybe they ask a question and you start to answer it and, they, and, they're like, and they, 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 they assume they already know the answer before you can even finish talking about it or explaining it and say, oh, no, no, you're here. Yeah, I, I, I know what that is. And you're like, really? You do? Okay, suit yourself. That's what God seems to be doing to us. And, and, and so when we receive revelation and, and go back to where we started this podcast episode, when we talk about the hard teachings of if you want eternal life, you're going to have to eat me. Or let me tell you all about plural marriage and plural gods. And if you just assume and, and, and read into that and take that a completely different direction because you think you know better? Or, or if you just turn away from it altogether because it, it doesn't make sense and you don't want to understand it, then that's when you become stiff-necked. That's when you start to assume you know more than God. Or, or that's when you, 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 you're, not, you're not soft, you're not willing. But if you look at that and say, really, how is that possible? What does that mean? How does that apply? How do I need to in, in, internalize that? And as you receive revelation and you're open and you're willing to ask, then you receive even more revelation. And the cool thing is, I'll finish with this. The cool thing is, you don't have to wait to receive a glorious revelation like Joseph F. Smith did in Doctrine and Covenants 138 to have this experience. Oftentimes we think that we turn to the scriptures to find answers. But more often when I turn to the scriptures, it's more like a conversation starter. I find questions. And there's a lot of ambiguity in the scriptures. We start talking about the Father and the Son and the nature of God. One of the most fundamental, important parts of faith, to have faith in a being that you can't understand is impossible. And yet there's so much ambiguity, almost as an open invitation saying, I dare you to ask me. I want to teach you. 
Don't turn to your scriptures necessarily looking for answers to everything. Turn to your scriptures looking for questions. What does this mean? And when's the last time when you read something like in Isaiah that that might be hard to understand or you weren't sure what it was talking about, that you stopped, you wrote it down, and you prayed and said, God, I don't know, this is hard. How does this work? And, and And not questioning in a way that this is proof that God doesn't exist. More questioning in, I believe God. I believe what God is telling me. God, can you help me understand this in context of what I understand about you? Do I understand you correctly? Do I understand things the right way? Or am I replacing what I should know about you with what I think I should know about you? The scriptures are an excellent place to go to find questions. And as you ask questions and as you seek God, that's when you start to build a relationship with Him. And that's when He starts to reveal truth to you. And that's when He starts to give you questions, uh, excuse me, answers. <coughs> Sorry. That's when He starts to give you answers. That these answers might drive further questions. And as you ask those questions and ponder and reflect, and don't do it necessarily in a, in a way of trying to doubt or disprove or not believe God, but rather do it, as, as Joseph F. Smith outlined here, while reflecting on the atonement. How does this relate to the atonement? What was the atonement? How does the atonement fit with what I am asking? If you put it in context with Jesus Christ and his role and his mission and salvation— then amazing things happen. Anyways, this has been a great pleasure for me going through Doctrine and Covenants with you guys, looking through these sections and and just finding the powerful messages that lay here, the symbolism, the stories, the connections with the ancient world and the old scriptures and connections to modern-day revelation and getting to understand and know Joseph Smith better. Thanks for listening. Thanks for for being with me. Next week, as I I mentioned here at the beginning, Nate's going to be taking over, doing a show solo. He's going to be covering the Articles of Faith and the Official Declaration, uh, or the Official Declarations. I will see you guys again uh, in two weeks. When I I get back from Florida, uh, we're going to be covering proclamation to the world on the family we're going to be doing a christmas message and then uh, nate and i are going to be introducing you guys into the world of the old testament so until then see ya